you've got a Bible, open up to the last chapter of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. It'll be helpful if you've got a copy of God's Word open. It's page 751 if you're using one of our hardback ESVs. It's in the pew in front of you there. Zechariah 14. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament, so you start in the Gospels and flip back a little bit. You'll get there quick. We're in the final chapter of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. There's an outline on the worship guide. If that's helpful for you, you can flip open and keep an eye on that as, as we move along. Zechariah chapter 14. Um, in, in our family, one of our favorite few days of, of the year is uh, the opening week of March Madness. So that Thursday and Friday in particular, there's kind of some play-in games that happen on Tuesday and Wednesday, and that's great. Basketball's great. You know, add as many rounds as you want. But the real thing kind of starts on, on Thursday and Friday, and, and our family loves it. And in the run-up to the tournament, we, we get excited about different aspects of it. So one day we'll talk about how much fun it is to have multiple TVs set up and multiple laptops, which we do, because in the kindness of the Lord, those days there are there are windows of time where there are four important basketball games happening at one time, which is just the kindness of the Lord. We love it. So we'll talk about how much fun that is to have multiple games on at once. Another day, we'll talk about the food that we're going to eat on those nights. Another day, we'll talk about the brackets that we're going to fill out and the competition that, that we're going to have with one another, where the winner gets to pick where we eat out, which if I win means we're not going to eat out because I'm the one that's in charge of our finances and the kids don't like that. That's why they don't like it when I win. Maybe they'll win this year. So, so there's different things we're excited about about that day. And if somebody just heard one of those conversations on its own, they would not know the full orbed excitement of the day. They would just think, oh, okay, this is a day where they watch a bunch of basketball and that's it. Or, okay, this is a day where they eat food that they like to eat. But no, it's, it's lots of different things. And we talk about those in, in different ways in, in the run-up. We're, we're having several conversations about the same event, but from, from multiple perspectives. Well, that's what's been happening in the final three chapters of the book of Zechariah. So all three of these chapters, chapter 12, 13, 14, they're all about the same thing. They're all about the day of the Lord, when Christ will return to defeat his enemies ultimately and to fully and finally save all of his people. So since chapter 12, the Lord's been unfolding for us this, this single event. And here in chapter 14, we, we really get to the climax of the thing. So, so what will happen on the day that Christ returns to this world and then the days after that? Well, chapter 14, it builds on chapter 12 and 13, and it really gives us the fullest look. Now, we won't read the entire passage up front. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a medium-sized chapter. We won't read it all up front, but let's at least hear the most important accomplishment of the day of the Lord, kind of the center of the thing. Look at verse 9 of Zechariah 14. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So, so that's what the day of the Lord is going to usher in for us. But, but we're going to see at least four main points that are drawn out from, from this passage. They're listed there in the outline. So first, the non-Christian world will attack God's people. We're going to see that in this passage. Second, God will protect his people, praise the Lord. Third, God will ultimately subdue all of his enemies. And then finally, God will transform this world forever. 
Those are the four main things I think we're going to see in this passage. So, so the first point that comes here about the day of the Lord, Zechariah 14, first point we should notice, the non-Christian world will attack God's people. Look at how he sets the passage up for us. Look at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Okay, so God's people, this would have been fresh for them. They had had everything taken from them a hundred years before Zechariah is talking here. That's when the nation of Babylon had come in and destroyed Jerusalem, abolished the place, taken all their stuff, and taken the people away in exile into, uh, into Babylon. That's where God's people had been until God had brought them back to the promised land 70 years later. And, and what God's saying here in verse 1 is that a day is coming when Babylon and, and the other nations who had taken advantage of Israel and stolen from them, a day was coming when those nations would, would bring Israel's stolen stuff and parade it in front of them, kind of taunting them. He says that that's coming in the future. Oftentimes, my, my family knows this, but oftentimes if I'm in the kitchen and I'm hungry, I've always been this way as a dad, I'll eat a cookie and I don't, I don't worry too much about the fact that the kids don't always get to eat cookies if I'm eating a cookie. There's all sorts of things grown-ups get to do that kids don't get to do, right? But usually if there's only one kid in there, I'll give that kid a cookie too. And I always say the same thing. I say, right place, right time. Because I think that's a good message to teach kids too, right? We're not too worried about this perfect equity where, yeah, justice is we're going to give the cookie to everybody in the house. No, like sometimes it's right place, right time. But I always tell the kids the same thing. I say, hey, eat this cookie here right now and don't tell your brothers and sisters that you got a cookie. Well, some of our kids are good at that. Some of our kids historically have not been as good at that. And one of our children, she or he, will usually take the cookie and even if she or he eats it in the kitchen, they will go and make it clear to their brothers and sisters, I have just received a cookie, right? that's the kind of thing that's, that's happening here. That's a silly example, but that's what the nations are doing in, in this future prophecy. They're, they're rubbing it in Israel's face that they had taken this stuff from Israel. They had taken their possessions, their spoil, where he says in, in verse 1. Not only did they steal Israel's stuff to begin with, but then they come back out to, to rub salt in the wound, dividing it up in front of Israel. So here's all your stuff. Now we're going to divide it amongst ourselves while you're watching. Now that takes a lot of animosity, right? Not only did they take their stuff, but they're going to divide it up in front of them. A lot of animosity, but, but that's characteristic of the way that the world at large feels about God and his people. The non-Christian world will attack God's people. And we're told the same thing in the New Testament. This isn't just something we see in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Listen to these verses. I'll read three of them. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or 1 Peter 4, verse 4. The world is surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of immorality, and they slander you because of it. Or listen to what Jesus tells us in John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, then they will also persecute you. 
So the non-Christian world will attack God's people. And here's the reason vo- uh, verses like this are, are so helpful. We need passages like this because it's sometimes easy to think that if, if as Christians, if we're just nice enough, if we're just sweet enough, if we just serve people enough, then the world will like the way of Jesus and they'll like the message of Jesus and they'll like us. As I say that, think about that. I sometimes operate that way. Don't you operate that way sometimes? You think, oh yeah, they don't like Christians, but it's only because they haven't been around me. But I can love this person faithfully enough. I can be good enough in front of them that I bet I can change their mind, right? But listen, that's just not true. Like we just read, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Of course, we saw this in Jesus's life and ministry, with the exception of a very, very small group of disciples, where the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see Jesus for who he was. For, for that small exception, the rest of the world hated Jesus. And Jesus, listen, he was much more loving than you will ever be, much more patient. He served much more faithfully than you will ever serve and they hated him. They hated him so much that they killed him. Isn't that so wild? Jesus was great and loving and perfect. The world hated him so much, they took his life. Listen, the message of the gospel, it is not appealing to the sinful heart. And sinners, unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, sinners will never like it. The same way we didn't like it until the Spirit opened our eyes. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, to us, the gospel smells like life, but to non-Christians, the gospel smells like death, right? When you have little children and they're in diapers, so one of those kids could go to the bathroom in their diaper, and if you're the parent in the house, you can go a while and kind of not smell it because the smell is just there and it's sort of pervasive, But the parent that's been out running errands walks in and instantly smells that smell. Or if you're cooking stuff in the kitchen, maybe the garbage smells, but you don't smell it because you're in there. And somebody walks in and they think, how can you not smell how bad it smells in here? That's the gospel. For somebody who's been regenerated and given new life by the Spirit, it smells like life. But for everybody else, it smells like death. Like Jesus just told us, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So so here in our first verse, the nations are dividing up Israel's possession in their midst the the same way that the non-Christian world would end up dividing Jesus' clothes in his midst 500 years later, right? We follow him. We shouldn't expect anything different. The non-Christian world will attack God's people. And and through Zechariah, God tells Judah that's going to continue for the rest of human history. And these attacks, they'll one day culminate. They'll one day day climax for the enemies of God's people. Look at what Zechariah tells the people in verse 2. He says, For I will, is the Lord talking, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, Now, when he talks about Jerusalem here, he says they'll be gathered against Jerusalem, I think that's a a stand-in to to represent God's people generally. So so not the literal earthly city of Jerusalem, but but rather all Christians on earth, Jew and Gentile. 
So the way we're told about this in Revelation 20, verse 9, it says the nations will come to attack the camp of the saints. Of course, a saint is just a Christian, somebody who's been sanctified. So, so Zechariah, I think he's prophesying a day is coming in the future when all the nations will gather together against God's people. Now, that's something that hasn't happened before. So in the Old Testament, individual nations would come against God's people. Sometimes even a league of nations, a couple of nations together would attack God's people. But it was never every nation together. And in our day, there's nations who, who actively make it difficult to be a Christian, but there's never been this concerted effort of all nations together, all non-Christians to attack the church. But it looks like one day that's exactly what will happen. All the nations will attack God's people. Now, there's something we want to notice here right off the bat about verse 2, is that God's in complete control over that situation. That's comforting for us, but it's a little bit jarring for our sensibilities if you think about it. So who is it, we're told, who gathers these nations together to come and attack God's people? Well, it's God. He's the one talking in verse 2, and he says, I, God, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Listen, God is not just in control of the good things that happen in this world. God is in control of the bad things that happen in this world as well. Now, God isn't to blame for those bad things. He's not responsible for bad things in that way. James 1 teaches us that, among other passages. But don't get this wrong. Everything that has ever happened in the universe is under God's control. Everything. Praise the Lord for it. Listen, we don't want a God who says, I'm just going to work in the good things and be in control of those, and I'm going to take my hands off of everything else and whatever happens, happens. We don't want that. And praise the Lord, that's not our situation. Everything that's ever happened in this universe is under God's control. So on that future day, it's God who gathers these nations together to attack Jerusalem. And it's, it's not just a potential attack either that's stopped before it happens. No, it, it actually occurs. In the middle of verse 2, we're told, And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So these nations, they, they end up actually attacking God's people and doing damage. And as Christians, we've got to know the, the attacks that we'll face as Christians might do damage as well. It's like we're told in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Well, oftentimes surprised, but, but we shouldn't be. Persecution shouldn't surprise us. So don't be shocked when people at work are sometimes cold toward you because of your Christian faith. And they think about you different. They put you in a different category than their other coworkers. Don't, don't be dumbfounded when your non-Christian neighbor thinks that our church is evil because we, we think that the Bible's sexual ethics are true and a standard of truth that holds for all people. There, there could be attacks on you that, that do some damage. And for those of us who, who could be around in the final season of human history, before Jesus' return, a damaging attack is coming. But that shouldn't be surprising for us to hear that the non-Christian world will attack God's people. But, and this is great news to hear, after our first point, God will always protect his people. It's the second point. God will always protect his people. Look at what he does when the nations attack. Look at verse 3. 
then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. Okay, so the picture is, is that the, the Mount of Olives, it was on the eastern side of Jerusalem, it'll be split in half, and what you get because of that split is a big valley. Now look at the reason for that, verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. So, so basically, the valley created by the splitting of the mountains, it's meant to keep God's people safe. It's a place they can flee. So the image is that they can go to that valley and be kept safe. It's, it's like the hymn Rock of Ages says, Rock of Ages cleft for me, make a spot for me, right? Where, where I won't meet judgment or, or attack. God will always protect his people. Now, like we've mentioned before, this doesn't necessarily mean he'll protect us materially. He won't always protect your bank account. He won't always protect your, your physical health. He won't even always preserve our physical life. Remember what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 21, verse 16. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Isn't that interesting? Our world would hear that and say, wait a second, not a hair of your head will perish. You just said some of us will die. How's that work? But of course, what he's talking about is our spiritual life. Spiritually, Christians will be kept safe. Our eternal destiny will be kept and held by the Lord, preserved for us. In that way, not a hair of our head will perish. So, so physical death may happen to the followers of Jesus. In fact, it will happen to most followers of Jesus, right, eventually. But the Lord promises to protect us from the most dangerous threat any of us face, which is spiritual. So if you're trusting in Jesus, he will protect you from that. That's what the passage in Jude said that we read as our call to worship. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So God will keep you from stumbling. Listen to the way Jesus says it to his disciples in Mark 13. He's talking about a, a particularly difficult time that's coming for followers of Christ. There's some dispute among commentators about what he's talking about in particular, but for our purposes, it doesn't matter. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 13, verse 20. It's a difficult season that's happening. This is what the Lord says. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So basically, Jesus reminds us, hey, God conforms human history. He twists together the details of the universe to preserve the Christian's faith in Christ, to keep us spiritually safe. And he does that for you and me every day. So listen to this. We hear that and we think, how does, how does the Lord do that? How does he twist things together to protect me spiritually, to protect my soul, to help me hold on to Christ? He does it every single day, every time you're faced with temptation to sin and turn away from that sin. 
So when you do that, so just think about this past week. Now, there were times you were tempted to sin and you sinned, just like I sinned, right? That's why we have to have a prayer of confession every Sunday is to model that, that in our Christian life, we should be confessing our sin regularly before the Lord. But there were also times, weren't there, where you were tempted to sin and you didn't sin. Well, when that happened, that was you, to use the imagery of our passage, going down in that valley to be protected, right? Choosing to to go to the place where the Lord provides us with safety. Listen to the way Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It's kind of the the version in, in, uh, in this letter in 1 Corinthians of this valley that the people in Zechariah's day could flee to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide you the way of escape, right? The valley. He'll provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse five in our passage, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. So so when you're being tempted to sin, God always provides you with a valley. He always provides you with a way of escape. For us as Christians, we need encouragement. Go down that valley, right? Identify it. I'm being tempted. Where's the way of escape, right? Is it a promise from scripture that the Lord reminds me of? Is it leaning on a brother or sister? who I've asked to help me keep accountable when it comes to this sin. Is it praying to the Lord? Is it all those things? There's, there's a way of escape. So flee to that valley. And why does God provide that to us? Well, it's because in this sinful flesh, we're weak and our enemies are strong. But praise God, he always protects his people. It's the second thing we see here. And praise God, his protection for us one day will, will be completed where all of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they'll be fu- fully and finally subdued. It's our, it's our third point this morning. God will ultimately subdue all of his enemies. Look at the last line of verse 11. There he says, on the heels of this work, he says, Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So a day is coming when all of our enemies will be gone. God will have put them away, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They'll all be gone. And in our passage, it really focuses on his human enemies in the world, the human enemies of God and his people. God will ultimately subdue all of his enemies. Now, now with each particular enemy, he can do it in one of two ways. These are listed there on the outline. Either God will defeat that particular enemy or he will save that particular enemy. But one way or the other, he will subdue them. He'll either defeat them or he'll save them. Let's look at the defeat part first. So so on this future day of the Lord, God will gather the nations together to attack his people, like he says in verse two. Now look down at the last sentence of verse five. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Okay, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know this this is like final battle language. So usually when God is said to come with his holy angels with him, that's followed up with ultimate judgment of all people and and the end of the world. Listen to the way Jesus talks about it in Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, same language we see in Zechariah, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
Interestingly enough, this is another spot where we see Jesus's full divinity. In fact, Jesus isn't just man, he's also fully God. So in verse five in our passage in Zechariah, who is it that's coming with his holy ones to judge his enemies? Well, it's the Lord, it's Yahweh, right? Okay, in Matthew 25, passage we just read, who is it who's coming with the holy ones, with the angels to judge the, judge the world? It's the son of man, which is a designation for Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. We see it here in this language in our passage in, in Zechariah. He's going to judge all of his enemies, defeat them. Look at verse 12 and following. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Look down to verse 15. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So there's judgment that's coming for the enemies of God's people. God combines those two images, plagues on the people, plagues on their animals. In Revelation 19, verse 17, listen to the similarity here. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So on the future day, the Lord, he'll, he'll defeat his enemies. He'll subdue them in that way. He'll defeat them. Now, now, what application does that truth have for us right now? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 gives us two applications as it talks about the coming day of the Lord, that all of his enemies will be defeated. First, that should satisfy our, our God-given desire for justice. God's, God's enemies, they won't ultimately get away with it. They'll be punished in the end. Eventually, they'll be judged, and, and that's right and good. But, but second application for us, we should look forward to the relief that we'll have in heaven because we won't have enemies any longer. That will bring relief to us. We should look forward to that relief. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that will grant relief to us who are afflicted. So, so be encouraged that God will ultimately subdue all of his enemies, in part by, by defeating them. But praise God, he doesn't defeat and judge every enemy he comes across. And that's good news for us because we were his enemies. So if that was the case, we would all be judged. We would all be defeated. But, but no, praise the Lord, he saves some of his enemies. There, there will be survivors among God's enemies. Look at verse 16 in our passage. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Now we're going to talk about the Feast of Booths in a minute, what that's getting at. But all we need to notice now is that God saves a group of his enemies. He doesn't defeat them all. He saves a group of them. We've already seen this a few times throughout the prophecy of Zechariah, that he's not only going to save people from Israel, but he's going to save people from the nations. Listen to chapter 2, verse 11. 
and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So he's looking ahead and saying, yeah, I'm going to save people from other nations, not just Israel. Or chapter 8, verse 23. In those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Well, that theme of God saving a group of his enemies, it shows up here in chapter 14, verse 16 again. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. But there's something that may stand out to you as odd when you read Zechariah 14. It looks like on the face of it, there's a chance for, for, for God's enemies to be judged after the day of the Lord. So just on the face of it, it looks like, okay, the final judgment happens in Zechariah. And then after the final judgment, we're given this picture of heaven. And it looks like there's still an opportunity for people to show themselves as God's enemies after the final judgment and then to need to be judged for it. Look at verse 17. You'll see what I'm talking about. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, then there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Okay, so, so when we hear that, doesn't it seem pretty clear that there are at least potential enemies of the Lord that are there in the promised land after the return of Christ, after the day of the Lord? So, so what's going on there? Well, I don't think the Lord is telling us that there will be non-Christians who show up in the promised land after the return of Christ. And, and there's several reasons I don't think that's the case. We'll focus on one of them. And that is the connection between Zechariah 14 and Revelation 21. We've talked about it throughout Zechariah. I don't know if you've noticed, but the New Testament reading a lot of Sundays has been from Revelation. Because there's so many connections between Zechariah and Revelation. So here... Let's look at the connections between Zechariah 14 and Revelation 21. So Revelation 21, it's clearly after the full and final judgment of God's people. Everybody's agreed on that. We're talking new heavens, new earth. God's enemies have been judged. His people have been fully and finally saved. That's what's happened by the time we get to Revelation 21. It's talking about the recreated world in which only glorified Christians will dwell with the Lord for all eternity. But, but what we see in Zechariah 14, there's multiple details here that show up in Revelation 21 only after the final judgment of God. Let me point out three of them. So, the river of life. The river of life that we see in Zechariah 14 in verse 8 in our passage, that river shows up in Revelation 21 and 22 after the final judgment, when it's only believers that are in God's presence for all eternity. Second thing, verse 14, the riches from the nations that are brought into heaven in verse 14 in our passage, you remember? Those show up in Revelation 21, after the final judgment. Third thing, the the sun being gone. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's in verse 6 of our passage. The sun and moon being gone and God's glory providing the light. That shows up where in Revelation? In Revelation 21, after the final judgment. Okay, but, but if that's the case, then why does God describe it the way he does here? In verses 16 through, through 19, 
where he talks as if, yeah, there's nations that could still defect. There's people that could still decide, I don't want to serve the Lord, even in the new heavens and the new earth. Why talk about it this way if that's not really the case, literally? Well, I think God's giving the people of Zechariah uh, in his day, I, I think he's given them a picture that they would understand to communicate a particular truth, which is that he will ultimately subdue all of his enemies for eternity. The main truth we've been talking about, he'll subdue all his enemies. I think he's given these people a picture that they can understand that points them toward that truth. It's the same reason I think he brings up the Feast of Booths that he talks about here. So he talks as if, if you're just reading it on the face of it, oh, in heaven we'll be celebrating the Feast of Booths for all eternity. But, but we understand that's, that's not the case. We know that because Colossians 2, 16 through 17 tells us that the feasts of Israel were a shadow pointing forward to Christ. That they're, not, they're not in play any longer. They were pointing forward to him. Or verse 21 in our passage talks about people making sacrifices to the Lord, boiling the meat of the sacrifice. That makes it sound like there's going to be animal sacrifices in heaven. Of course, we know that's not true. The, the book of Hebrews makes it clear, chapter 10, verse 12 in particular, Jesus has offered the ultimate one-time sacrifice for sins. There, there's no more animal sacrifices necessary. And Revelation 21, verse 22 tells us there won't be a temple in heaven, which is where the sacrifices would have taken place. So, so see, the Lord has given his Old Testament people imagery they can understand in order to point forward to a spiritual truth that that it probably would have been a little bit hard for them to understand at the time. So let me give you an example that I think we'll all understand. Maria's been pregnant five times now, and four of those times we have had a child who could understand mom is pregnant. Now, each of those times when a child said, where is the baby? Or when we were trying to explain where the baby was, I'll tell you what we did not say. We did not say the baby is in mom's uterus. What did we say? It's probably the same thing that you say. Baby's in mama's tummy, right? What's tummy shorthand for? Stomach. Was the baby in mama's stomach? No. Praise God for it. That'd be bad news, right? I'm not a doctor. But if there's a baby in a stomach, that's not a good thing. But see, the reason we said it that way is because little kids don't know what a uterus is. You didn't know you were going to hear so much uterus talk, did you? Little kids don't know what a uterus is, so we say tummy. Is that deceitful? Of course not. It's loving. We're explaining in a way that they can understand what's happening with that baby. Well, well, the Lord does that regularly throughout the Old Testament. I think that's what's happening here in, in Zechariah 14. But, but of course, the main idea is clear. God will save a portion of his people's enemies. And once again, let's praise God for it because we were his enemies. Ephesians 2 verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you, me, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's something, isn't it? You were an active enemy of the Lord. I was an active enemy of the Lord. Some people in this room, we were active enemies for decades. But because he's so incredibly gracious, he saved us. And there are other enemies of God that he's going to save, right? That that's why we should pray for and, and seek out opportunities to tell non-Christians about the gospel. So there's an opportunity for his spirit to save more of his enemies. And it certainly helps us to maintain gratefulness to the Lord by remembering that. We were his enemies, and he saved us. 
But make no mistake about it that these are the only two outcomes for God's enemies. Either God will save an enemy before Jesus comes back, or he will defeat them when Jesus comes back on the day of the Lord. And that's why if you're here and, and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that, that's why you've, you've got to turn to Jesus in faith, believing that he is the only one who can save you, the only one who can pay for your sins. Come, come talk to me about that. Email me. My email address is there on the worship guide on the back. If you're willing to think about that more, talk about that more, let God save you so, so he won't have to defeat you on the day of Christ Jesus, because one way or another, he will ultimately subdue all of his enemies. But see, God subduing his enemies, it's really just part of a bigger project. The main point, and it's our final point this morning, on that future day of the Lord, God will transform the world forever. Look at what God ushers in when he returns with his angels. Verse six, on that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Okay, so on the day of the Lord, we're told God will take away the light. He'll take away the sun, right? There won't be a source of light in the sun during the day. There won't be the moon, a source of light at night. There will be no light, we're told. That's why in the middle of verse seven, we're told this new day is neither day nor night because the sun and the moon, they're the markers, right? Between the day and the night. Those markers will be taken away on the day of the Lord. Now, that's a pretty big transformation, isn't it? Remember, this, this last point, God will transform the world forever. That's a pretty big one. So you might be sitting here the way that, that I said to myself, I will never do this with my kids the way my dad did it with me. You know, you go see a movie with your dad, and he says, $7 for a movie ticket. It was, you know, 25 cents when I was a kid. What did I do when I took my kids to a movie last Sunday? That exact thing that I said I was never going to do. You guys, I can't believe how much this is. It would, you know, this would have been a fraction of the price. So you might think back and you might think, man, things today are so different from when I grew up. But, but I guarantee there's not as big of a change as this, as the size of the sun and moon being taken away. This is a huge transformation. But, but here's the amazing thing. Even though the sun and the moon are taken away, and because of that, there's no distinction between day and night on this day of the Lord, even though that'll be the case, Look at the end of verse 7. But at evening time, there shall be light. Okay, so how does that work? There's no sun and moon. Where is this light coming from? Well, God's people would have been familiar with this idea. It's from Isaiah 60. Listen to Isaiah 60, verse 19. It's another passage about the new heavens and the new earth when the Lord returns. This is what he says there. The sun shall be no more. It shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. It's the same thing we saw in our New Testament reading. Revelation 21, verse 22, in heaven. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This transformed world at the day of the Lord, it won't need a sun or moon or stars, because the glory of the Lord will light the place up. And that's because in heaven, God's presence will be visible throughout the whole place. That's an incredible promise.
So remember, under the old covenant, God's unique, noticeable presence, it would show up on Mount Sinai. But remember, that was away from the people. It was just Moses that would go up there. Or it would show up, his presence would show up in the temple or in the tabernacle. But that was only for the high priest. The people were, were kept away. But see, in the new heavens and the new earth, God's noticeable presence will fill the whole place up. We'll be in his direct presence every square inch of the place for all eternity. And that's significant because, because it's in God's presence where true full life is located. True life, real abundant life comes from the presence of the Lord. Look at the picture we're given for that in verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Those words sound familiar, don't they? We just heard it in our congregational reading, John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that sang, do you give me a drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water, the literal water the woman was asking for, anybody who drinks of that water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is pointing forward to the day when we'll be in his presence for all eternity and we'll be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. Just take a minute to compare that to the other places we go to quench our inner thirst. So, so does money, does it quench your thirst? Were, were you satisfied? Are you satisfied today with the raise you got 15 years ago? No, it's not the way it works, right? You get a raise and you think, oh, I'm set for life. But a few years later, what do you want? You want a new raise. Or if you're a kid, the toy you got for Christmas when you were four, has that been enough? Have you said Christmas is since then, mom and dad, I'm set. I've got this toy. No, that's not the way it works, right? No, we, we always want more. That thirst isn't quenched. Not from things in this world. But see, a day is coming when the Lord will give us his full presence for all eternity, and it'll be like water that fully satisfies us. Our thirst will be quenched. And the reason God's full presence can be there is, is because sin won't be there. So look at, uh, look at the final thing we're told in the book of Zechariah. Look at verses 20 through 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor. It's talking about a Canaanite there. You'll see that in the footnote if you look down there. There'll no longer be one of God's enemies in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So what he's saying is the new Jerusalem, our, our eternal heaven, it'll be perfectly free from sin. It'll be a holy place through and through. So verse 20 says that uh, there's this message that will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. The, the message is holy to the Lord. God's people in the Old Testament, they would have recognized that. You might recognize that from Pastor Tim preaching through Exodus. There was one thing in the Old Testament that had that inscription. Exodus 28, 36 tells us it was the turban that the high priest would wear. 
when he walks into the temple. During the Sunday night inductive Bible study, Tim's pointed this out for several months now, the process for getting anyone or anything into God's presence in the temple, it was meticulous. It involved ceremonial washings and sacrifices and special clothes for the people and special things for the inanimate objects, right? Being made of the right materials, having the precise measurements. And that was all communicating the message that God is holy and he can only dwell in a holy place with holy people and, and, and holy things. And, and what that meant was there weren't many people allowed in his presence. There weren't many things allowed in his presence. But see, on the future day, the Lord God will transform this world forever into a place that's completely holy. That's what's being communicated here. So, so what's the thing that has this inscription, holy to the Lord on it in Zechariah 14? It's, it's the horse. It's the bells on the horse that say, holy to the Lord. Okay, so for the kids here, there's a better chance of your parents letting you bring a horse in the house than there was of a horse going into the temple of the Lord under the old covenant, right? But see, everything in God's new creation will be holy. God will transform all of it. Zechariah tells us the same will be true of the dishes in heaven. Look at the last sentence of verse 20. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. So the new heavenly Jerusalem, it will only have holy things in it, right? God's place will be perfect. But look at the last line. And there shall no longer be a traitor. Again, talking about a Canaanite, an enemy of the Lord. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Okay, so now we've got God's perfect place with only God's perfect people. We've got his people in his place. And what will we be doing for all eternity after the day of the Lord? Verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Everyone in this recreated world will be worshiping the Lord. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And see, that's what heaven is. That's what the whole book of Zechariah has been pointing us toward. Heaven is God's perfect people in God's perfect place under God's perfect rule. And through your union with Jesus Christ, through faith alone in him, that's our destination. And that's what the day of the Lord will bring to us. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for this picture of, uh, of our future destiny. Father, we understand that, uh, that this world is broken. We don't need your word to tell us that. We feel the effects of it every day. We can read about it in headlines, online, in the newspaper. This world is broken. Father, we're so thankful that you are taking us to a place that will not be broken. It won't have a single crack in it. It'll be a place where there's no sin or sickness or suffering or death any longer. And Father, for those of us who are trusting in Christ alone to pay for our sins, we'll be in that place under your rule, apart from any enemies, from Satan and sin and death, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They'll be kept out of that place, and we'll be there with your full presence, 
satisfied with the river of life from Christ for all eternity. Father, would you help us to focus more and more on that place so that we're less and less focused on this life, that we would live this life in order to get to that place. Father, we're so thankful that you give us this picture to spark this hope in us. We pray that you would only grow it for your good and Father, for, uh, for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.